0: Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel, from the Globe and Mail. That's the sound of the moment Sri Lankan protesters stormed the president's office last week. They took over the presidential palace, too. Protesters were lounging on their president's sofa, lying on his bed, and swimming in his pool. They also stormed the prime minister's house and set it on fire. The country is in political and economic crisis right now, the worst it's seen in decades. After weeks of protest, the president fled the country and resigned. Now, the protesters are demanding a new government. There's a lot behind these protests, Runaway inflation, shortages of critical items like food, fuel, and medicine, and the country's steep debt, which it defaulted on in May. And some Sri Lankans are upset about another thing as well, the country's relationship with China.
1: So I think it will be a real test of China's diplomacy and its strategy, whether it is able to maintain a degree of influence in Sri Lanka and a degree of um, friendliness with whatever government results going forward.
0: James Griffiths is back on the podcast. He's the Globe's Asia correspondent. He's here to tell us how and why China is so involved in Sri Lanka and how this current crisis could rupture that relationship. This is The Decibel. James, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Usually we talk to you about China. That's, of course, where you're based now. But this actually works well because you've also covered a lot of stories out of Sri Lanka, too, in your previous role. So this is kind of your worlds colliding here on this story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was in Sri Lanka last for just after the Easter Sunday bombings in 2019, which, which in many ways were a catalyst to the current crisis that we're seeing now.
0: Hmm. How, how would you describe how much trouble Sri Lanka is in at this point?
1: Um, you see a lot of people say that Sri Lanka is facing economic collapse, economic crisis. At this point, I think it's fair to say it's something more like an economic disaster a catastrophe mm. the government does not have enough money to buy basic things like fuel and food the currency is is massively devalued against foreign revenues the um, inflation has gone up everything that could go wrong with an economy is is going wrong essentially
0: mm. and that's why of course we see people protesting the way they are because they can't afford food and they don't have fuel these these basic necessities of life are just not available then
1: Yeah, people are increasingly desperate uh, that Sri Lanka imports a huge amount of its um, fuel and food and hasn't been able to do so. And so people are, you know, it's not like this is a problem they can solve themselves. There has been a huge um, amount of shortages of uh, very basic things across the country. And people are understandably desperate and understandably angry.
0: Can you help me understand the context here, James? How did Sri Lanka get to this point?
1: Yeah, so it's only a matter of years ago that Sri Lanka was a huge success story uh, in in South Asia, but even in the wider Asia-Pacific, it was basically the up and coming tourist destination um, in Asia, it was kind of the next Thailand, there was a huge amount of money being invested in tourism. And it was having relative success in other parts of the economy. So garment manufacturing and some other areas. Um, And that came off the back of about a decade of infrastructure investment by consecutive governments that had helped build new airports, highways, ports, things like that, that are really helping to power this new economy. Hmm. But in order to do that, in order to to pay for all of that, the governments took out pretty extravagant loans uh, from a variety of foreign lenders with the assumption that the economy would grow enough that they would be able to service that debt when the time came. And then, of course, what happened was they kept kicking that can down the road with the assumption that, hey, the economy is getting bigger and it's fine. We'll, We'll get there eventually. We can take on more debt in order to service the original debt. But then comes 2019, the terrorist attacks, which um, killed a huge amount of people and devastated the tourist economy because several of the targets were luxury hotels. Then you have 2020, which kills whatever recovery the tourist economy was having with with COVID. And then you have the war in Ukraine, which sends fuel and other uh, commodity prices skyrocketing just as Sri Lanka is struggling already to pay for things. And so it was these kind of three economic uh, pressures that all hit at once that really devastated the economy that was already in a pretty shaky situation.
0: Hmm. Sri Lanka owes money to a number of countries. So there's India, of course, Japan also lent the money, and also China. What role does China have in all of this?
1: Yeah, so Sri Lanka owes around 35 billion um, US dollars to a variety of foreign lenders. And China actually is not a huge portion of that. It it accounts for around 10%, 15% of Sri Lanka's foreign debt. Mm. But what's unique in a way about China is that it is... Of all the lenders, it is the one most closely associated with the uh, government of Gotabaya Rajapaksa, the very recently ousted president. Um, And China has had very strong ties to the Rajapaksa family since around 2005, when Gotabaya's brother Mahinda became president. When the Rajapaksas came to power, they relied on a lot of cheap money from China to, to fuel this infrastructure and also to build various fantasy projects around the country and kind of reward supporters. And China had had spent a lot of money, you know, both in in enabling uh, Sri Lanka to grow its economy and enabling Sri Lanka to invest, but also insuring up the Rajapaksas, particularly as a reliable ally Mm. in uh, the Indian Ocean. And so there is a lot more kind of political baggage when it comes to China's debt than, say, Japan, which owns a similar amount of of Sri Lanka's foreign debt, but isn't seen necessarily in the same way by a lot of ordinary Sri Lankans. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point there. You, so you said it's actually not a huge part of the, their debt, but you mentioned that China actually helps with their infrastructure a bit more. How significant is it on that side?
1: Yeah, so um, between around 2005 and 2015, which is um, the Mahinda Rajapaksa uh, administration, about 70% of Sri Lanka's infrastructure projects, so things like highways, airports, reservoirs, they were all funded by China. And 70%. 70%.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this was a huge amount of this growth that we've seen over the last decade or so was powered by Chinese money. You know, China was definitely the preferred lender for the Rajapaksas and was investing in this political relationship in a huge way.
0: Hmm. Okay, so a good political relationship with the Rajapaksas there. How about ordinary people in Sri Lanka? Do you have a sense of of how they felt about this this kind of relationship with their political leaders?
1: So it was controversial how close the Rajapaksas were to China. There was a fear that the country was kind of moving too close to Beijing, that it was losing its independence. You know, typically Sri Lanka has been relatively close to India, which is the major regional power. Um, and the government that replaced uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa in 2015 but, and fell after the bombings in 2019, they did attempt to kind of rebalance this and move back towards, towards India and kind of play both um, powers off against each other. To Sri Lanka's benefit, but since the Rajapaksa's came back to power in 2019, there was again this pushback towards China, and that was pretty controversial. I mean, people were people were happy to see the money and happy to see the investment, but they were definitely concerned about what the political price that Beijing might charge for this money was down the line.
0: The most recent Sri Lankan president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, he didn't have to go to China for financial aid. He could have gone to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. So why didn't he do that?
1: Some of that is because of this political relationship that the Rajapaksas had with China, that they felt they might get a better deal from China or that it would just be easier and quicker in order to go to Beijing and get a new loan. In 2020, when the COVID uh, pandemic hit, China did actually advance a further around three billion US dollars um, in loans to, to help the Sri Lankan government out. But since then, and since the crisis got even worse, Beijing hasn't hasn't been willing to to give even more money to, to Colombo. And you really saw this earlier this year, where where the Rajapaksas were stalling on going to the IMF with the apparent reason for that being that they thought they would be able to get more money from Beijing. Mm. And so it did seem that the Rajapaksas were, in a sense, caught out by this and were, were surprised and then belatedly started negotiating with the IMF. But at that point, the government was so unstable and the whole country was so unstable that those negotiations have been very difficult because the IMF, perhaps understandably, wants a reliable partner to to negotiate with and one that's going to be around in weeks and months to come.
0: Why is China investing so heavily in Sri Lanka here? I mean, it seems like there's got to be something in it for for them.
1: So for China, there are two benefits to investing in Sri Lanka. One is that Sri Lanka is an important part of Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative, this huge trade and infrastructure Project that spans most of the globe. Sri Lanka is an important part of that. It's you know a key stop you know in the Indian Ocean for shipping and and things like that. Mm. But more importantly, Sri Lanka is a potential foothold for China in the Indian Ocean in a military sense. So China has almost complete dominance of the South China Sea. Um, And the South China Sea is connected to the Indian Ocean through the Straits of Malacca, which is where a huge amount of shipping goes through and a huge amount of, you know, important products to China, such as oil and things pass through. And so... There's been a lot of investment and military cooperation with Sri Lanka with the apparent idea that this could be a forward base or at least friendly ally for Chinese naval operations in the Indian Ocean.
0: So that's really important context to know there. That kind of really there's there's something very strategic about this then. I I just want to go back to something you mentioned earlier there, James. You, you, You mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. What is that?
1: So the Belt and Road Initiative is a global trade and infrastructure project. It was launched by Chinese President Xi Jinping in 2013. And it now involves more than 140 countries around the world. Billions of dollars being put into building road and transportation links. So from China through Central Asia to Europe, really enabling Chinese products to get to markets in the West more easily. And then also kind of south of that along the ocean routes, building up ports throughout the Indo-Pacific for the same purpose.
0: And, and what is the strategy behind this initiative then? Like why is China doing this?
1: Um, so partly it is about just enabling China to open up new markets for trade and to shore up existing routes um, and there also this really spreads Chinese influence through a lot of the area, especially when we're talking about um, places that are geographically closer to China, such as as yeah as the Indian Ocean area, as Central Asia. You know, this is a way for China to really assert its dominance in its neighborhood.
0: There has been a lot of criticism against China's Belt and Road Initiative. So, can you help me understand some of the concerns about it? What are people worried about?
1: Yeah, so the the primary criticism has always been that this is, rather than about trade or about infrastructure, that this is about political power and projecting Chinese power uh, in its neighbourhood and even further afield, um, and that this is some kind of neo-colonial project for China to assert control over various um, neighbours or various countries that it has an interest in. Um, and there's a lot of you know accusations which which aren't particularly fair in a lot of a lot of ways that that China basically will lend out very cheap debts in order to gain control of key infrastructure in certain countries or gain political leverage over certain governments. And Sri Lanka is often held up as, as, a, as a key example of this. There is a, a port in the south of Sri Lanka that is notorious for the fact that it was leased to a Chinese company on a 99-year lease um, in order that Chi- that Sri Lanka could use some of that money to pay off foreign debt.
0: Hmm. Can we break this example down a little bit just to, to really understand it? So what what is the example? Example of this port, James. Can you just kind of walk me through what happened here, how it was built, and and, and what where what's happening with it now?
1: So the port of Hambantosa in southern Sri Lanka is a good example of a Belt and Road project, is in that it is a big deep water port that is very useful for for shipping and, and for you know improving trade with Sri Lanka. Uh, but, but in 2017, the, the project was kind of running out of money. And it wasn't clear that the Sri Lankan government and the Sri Lankan companies that were operating it were going to be able to do this um, in a financially viable way. And so they basically signed a lease to a Chinese company for 99 years to operate the ports um, in exchange for about a billion US dollars. Um, and that... Became hugely controversial both inside Sri Lanka and, and internationally because this was seen as China seizing, as it were, a key piece of Sri Lankan infrastructure. Even though you know China would argue this is a Chi- this is a Chinese company, it's not the government, and that Sri Lanka willingly signed it over in order to help pay some of its foreign debts. Mm. It's a very controversial project, but it's also more of an example of Sri Lanka borrowing beyond its means and not necessarily managing these huge projects very well and ending up in a situation where it has to borrow even more money, more than China coming in and setting this up as some kind of trap for Sri Lanka to fall into.
0: Of course, though, I mean, Beijing now controls this port for 100 years, though. So that there is something serious to be gained there on China's side that, that they got out of this.
1: Yeah, and it really speaks to, I think the Hambantota project really speaks to the political element to Beijing's lending in in that it doesn't necessarily need to come in with the intention of seizing infrastructure or, or setting some kind of trap for it to backfire in a way politically for Beijing because of the way that say, Chinese companies and Chinese banks are seen as arms of the Chinese state. So, you know, had this been a American company that ended up in charge of this port, people wouldn't necessarily be saying this was, oh, this was Washington now in control of it. But it's very hard for Chinese companies and, you know, obviously, for especially hard for Chinese state-owned companies to try and pretend that they don't ultimately answer to Beijing and that ultimately they aren't uh, political pawns when it comes to Beijing's greater, you know, geopolitical goals mm. in the Indian Ocean.
0: This is a really interesting point too, huh? So, coming back to the current situation, what do you think China is watching for now in Sri Lanka? They seem to have been very invested in this political relationship. How do you think Chinese officials are, are watching what's happening in Sri Lanka right now?
1: I think Beijing will be very nervous about the current situation. For two reasons. One, obviously, is to see their closest political ally in the country essentially driven from power. And and, and at this point, while the Rajapaksas have staged a pretty remarkable comeback in the past, the idea that they could be back in power in the near future just seems impossible. Um, so to see that that all of that political capital that China has invested in, in supporting this family and in building those relationships, to see it literally fly out of the country, it will be particularly concerning for China's leaders. And beyond that, even if Rajapaksa hadn't been an ally, I think there would be concern in Beijing to see any government in the region, and especially in a country that is so geopolitically important to China, being overthrown by popular protest. You know, while this wasn't a military-style revolution or something like that, the fact that protesters were able to force the president to flee the country and ultimately resign you know, is is a, is a huge example of people power and and of the power of popular dissent. And that's not something that China wants to necessarily encourage. Mm. And so whatever government that we e- end up with out of this crisis, China, I think, will be very wary of engaging with them because they don't necessarily want to send the message that this is, from their view, an appropriate way for governments to be chosen or for governments to be formed. Mm.
0: You've been following this pretty closely, James. I wonder, what do you think will happen to this relationship between Sri Lanka and China?
1: So after the Mahinda Rajapaksa administration ended in 2015, we did see this big shift uh, back towards India and towards other global powers and away from China. And I think we're probably going to see that rebalancing again, potentially in an even more drastic sense. India has very much stepped up as as a lender to to Sri Lanka in the current crisis and is is very happy to reassert its its um, influence over the country. And we've also seen other uh, other places like the U.S., which may step up in order to pry Sri Lanka away from China's influence. So I think it will be a real test of China's diplomacy and its strategy, whether it is able to maintain a degree of influence in Sri Lanka and a degree of um, friendliness with whatever government results going forward. Because, you know, beyond just the Rajapaksas, this is a huge amount of money that China has has lent to the country and, and a huge amount of Effort That has been invested in building up Sri Lanka as a key ally. And so to lose that, I think would be very, um, very unfortunate for Beijing. And so it will be interesting to see how they try and try and maintain some degree of influence.
0: Just lastly here, James, then what happens now for Sri Lanka?
1: So Sri Lanka is desperately in need of a government that can negotiate with the International Monetary Fund and with other foreign lenders in order to try and relieve some of the current economic crisis and bring some um, aid to, to the people that are really struggling. But at the same time, it's going to be very difficult to form that government without some degree of economic stability or or some degree of relief from the current situation that they're in, because people are understandably still very angry and they're very wary of any measures that try and spread the pain to ordinary people when a lot of this is as, as a result of government incompetence or government overreach. The flip side of that is that this is a country that fought a very brutal civil war for decades and has... Uh, reputation for cracking down um, in fairly brutal ways. And there have already been some signs that the government, now that the Rajapaksas have gone, is starting to lose patience with the idea that people are continuing to fill the streets of Colombo and are continuing to call for more resignations. And so, you know, that's a major concern. I think that if the government feels that it is struggling to regain control, that it may move to do so... Forcefully.
0: James, thank you so much for taking the time to help us understand this.
1: Thanks, Manika. Great to be here. That's it
0: for today. I'm Manika Raman Wilms. Our summer producer is Zara Kozema. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer, and Angela Pacenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.